Okay, let's get started. Uh, it's, we're actually a couple minutes behind already, so my fault. Um, where I left off on Wednesday, we were talking about a hypothesis tests and or sorry confidence intervals on regression coefficients. Before I carry on, um, do you have any questions about anything? It could be anything. Well, it has to be you know appropriate. Like, who's going to win the Super Bowl? I have no idea. I don't even know who's playing. Seattle and some other team. Denver. Denver. Okay. I am, going, I am going to watch it because I'm in training to be a good American, so I need to watch American <laughs> football. I'm in training, yeah. Oh, 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 I don't know about that. Oh, sorry, to, not to insult anybody who likes NASCAR, sorry. Canada's not going to win gold this year in hockey, right? I don't know, doesn't Canada always win gold in hockey? <laughs> I mean, does this go without saying? Was it? I don't know. Long time ago. Sweden, Sweden won like two Olympics ago. Did they? Yep. Is that a good country's falling apart the Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. None of those are questions, though. I don't know what to say. Do you think it's correlation or causation? That's right. <laughs> That's right. I don't know. You know, it's like up here. Everyone's just pretty much an honorary Canadian if you're from the UP. You really ought to be anyway. Except for all the guns. I mean, winter's long, lots of time outside. Everyone says A all the time. It's low population density like most of Canada. I don't know. Where was I? Anyway, let's get on track. So there are no questions, evidently, since we're talking about sports. What's that? We were regressing, exactly. All right, since there are no questions, let's carry on. So where I left off was um, we talked about uh, essentially applying the central limit theorem to uh, regression coefficients. And if you were to repeatedly resample and fit a regression, that each of your estimates of the slope and the intercept coefficients in a linear regression is a random variable. It has a probability distribution. If n is large and your residuals are um, normally distributed, then that probability distribution is also normal. And uh, the expected values all work out. Uh, I gave you the formulas to estimate the variances of those regression coefficients. Those, whenever you talk about the variance of a statistic, you're talking about a standard error, a true standard error. As statistics have their own distributions. The sampling distributions under these assumptions are normal. And we can estimate the variance of those distributions from uh, the standard error. We use that to construct confidence intervals and hypothesis tests. I gave the example of a confidence interval uh, yesterday, so we can also do hypothesis tests. On regression coefficients. Now, uh, I don't know, maybe others have done this. I, I never felt I fully appreciated the difference between statistical and research hypotheses until I became a graduate student. I thought all hypotheses were constructed this way in terms of population parameters. But I would like to emphasize, it's my personal philosophy, if, if alpha here is non-zero in any statistical test that you do, you're acknowledging explicitly upfront that you're going to make mistakes at least, or at uh, no less than, I should say no less than alpha percent of the time. You're going to reject null hypotheses that are actually true alpha percent of the time if you do this 
over and over and over again. And so you acknowledge you're going to be making explicit statistical mistakes. They're imperfect. So what, do we, what is the point of statistics then? Well, the trick, of course, is you can't know truth unless you measure the whole population. But we can control this error rate. And if we can, can uh, conduct good studies where we have a significant amount of power, then we have a good ability to, to reject false nulls a lot of the time. And that's helpful for us in advancing our research hypotheses, but it's why we don't ever do one study. Nobody tests a new drug that's supposed to cure cancer with one study and says, we're done. We rejected the null. It does help. We're done. We're all finished. Because we could have made a mistake. So we have confirmatory studies, right? That also helps guard against bias and other things. So I want you to think of everything we do in statistics here as just one part of what you do as scientists in training. Uh, uh, for in your research. But anyway, we can take a research, we usually we take research hypotheses and we conduct some statistical hypotheses tests that help us advance our research hypotheses. And one really common one might be that the slope is zero against the slope not equal to zero. If the slope is, is not equal to zero, then there is a relationship between x and y in our regression or x uh, 2 and y or x3 and y in multiple regression. Here I'm putting in beta 1 because we've been talking in the context of simple linear regression. And we can set up, if we, if we have, uh, we meet all those regression uh, assumptions, the normality of residuals and independence and identical distribution, then we can very easily construct t-scores the same way we did in basic hypotheses test to, to test this hypothesis. So our t-score under the null hypothesis is just, it's always, these are always set up the same way. It's our sample-based values minus our hypothesized values divided by the standard error of our, uh, and actually, usually we estimate, we replace this with the standard error of the estimated coefficient as our, our estimate. And I gave you the formula for this the other day, and you're going to calculate this, and you've got a value for the population uh, parameter under the null hypothesis from your hypothesis test. How do you draw a conclusion about this? You, you go to a t-distribution. The way you'll actually do it most of the time is you'll find this t-quantile somewhere in here. Hopefully that t-quantile is out here and you'll calculate the probability associated with it. And here's your p-value. And if your p-value is less than alpha, what do you do? or it's actually less than alpha over two, because it's a two-sided test, and you reject. How are you going to do this? Actually, this is a T distribution, so this is T with N minus two degrees of freedom. Where do you get the degrees of freedom from? Your software is going to do this for you. It's always the degrees of freedom always come from the, the, uh, the standard error, whatever the standard error was you used in your test. And how do you get the standard error? This thing, it depends on, if you look at the formula, I never calculate these by hand, so I don't have them memorized. The standard error of B1 was sigma squared divided by the sums of squared x. Sigma squared is your uh, residual variance, and that's calculated from the sum squared residual. If you back all the way up to your ANOVA table, you find it's n minus 2, right? And so that's where you get the degrees of freedom from. It's actually helpful 
to think of that as a common rule when you're doing statistical tests because particularly if you get into ANOVA or you get into complicated regression models where you're testing against different variances, you need to come up with the right degrees of freedom to do your test correctly. The degrees of freedom for any statistical test is always the degrees of freedom associated with the standard error. And so you can back up how you got that standard error to find that right degrees of freedom. Of course, this is all going to be generated from your statistical software. If you did want to get this p-value from R, you're going to use the pt function, and you're going to give it your t-calc and your degrees of freedom. And that's going to give you the probability to the left of whatever that uh, t-calculated is. You can, you can pretty much do this in your head right away. If your t-calc happens to be positive, you're going to reject if this pt is greater than 0.975. Boom, because it's giving you the probability to the left. Your t-calc is positive, so we're only interested in finding out if we're in the right-hand rejection region. And we know the probability to the left. If we're using alpha 0.05, we're not out here in the far right unless our probability to the left is greater than 0.975, greater than or equal to 0.975. If your t-calc happens to be negative, you use the same pt, boom, we reject if the answer from this here is less than 0.025, less than or equal to 0.025. Don't forget, you can use one-sided hypothesis tests if you want in these, if they're of interest to you. Because in regression, usually we have some idea about the direction of the slope. If I'm fitting a regression to predict height as a function of tree age, am I looking for a not equal zero or greater than zero? Hopefully height goes up with age, not down with trees. And so I can actually make these more powerful by making them one-sided. You can do the same thing. And again, remember, with regression, we're not always just trying to find, is there a relationship? Oh, there is if this thing is non-zero. Sometimes we know there's a relationship. Is height related to age? Do we really need to collect data and fit a regression? Find out if tree height is related to age? No, but we may be interested in concluding whether we're exceeding some threshold. We want to estimate a parameter. I don't know, on this site, is the height increase more than one foot per year? We might do a t-test and have an alternative in here that it's actually greater than one or 1.1 or 2. You can put in other values. So this is the standard default test that you're going to get from R. If you fit a linear model object in R, say it's height as a function of age, and you put in your data frame, name, whatever it is, you get a linear model object. And you guys um, haven't done these yet, but I'll show you an example in a minute. You may have played with them for fun because we haven't done any linear regressions in the first homework. This will give you the coefficients. But if you wrap this thing in a function called summary, you will get not only the coefficient estimates, but by default you will get these hypotheses the, the, the classic null regression hypothesis for all of the coefficients. You get it for the slope and the intercept. If it's multiple regression, you get it for multiple ones. You'll also get that overall f-test we talked about last week. And then we'll also get some fit statistics, which we'll talk about next. So this, this is kind of your friend. And by the way, if you get tired of typing in R, you don't want to type, okay, I'm, I want to find summary bracket lm and then bracket and then what was the name of that response variable in my data frame? I think it was, was it little ht or was it capital ht? I can't really remember. Whatever. You can write your own r functions in, and, and so you could actually set up a function called, what are we talking about, lm sum? Is there a function called lm sum? But you could make one. You could make one. You could make a function called lm sum 
and we could put in here this, and then we could say summary. Well, we'd have to put in x, y, maybe we'll put in uh, y, x, d, like that. Summary, lm, y tilde x, comma, d, bracket, bracket, like that. And then you want to use it, you just say lm sum, and we'd give it our y, and we'd give it our x, and we'd give it our data frame. That wouldn't work because I haven't got the syntax just right. But what I'm showing you is that in R, you can write your own custom functions that embed, that embed uh, existing base functions to do things for you that you find uh, in interesting or you do frequently and you don't feel like typing it anymore. Most of the time, I end up just typing summary bracket. I usually fit the R objects. Yeah, yeah, the tilde, use the tilde as for as a function of in R. This, this thing is a formula. You can actually store those in R objects. You can say my f uh, ht tilde age. And then you can put in here my f. Ugh. Went and washed all that off. I'm out of white pants. Better than green and red and black and things from the whiteboard. Anyway, any questions about that? I'm giving you just some hints. You're not, you know, the thing with R is that if I sat down and told you everything you could possibly do in one lecture, I would definitely put you to sleep. I guarantee it, even those of you who think you wouldn't, I would put you to sleep. Even with my absolutely astounding sense of humor, my my glowing, awesome personality and my flowing locks of hair and everything else, I'd still put you to sleep. Okay. But I've, I haven't emphasized that enough in past years. Please remember that those hypothesis tests, they come out, they're always for the default in, in the summary function in R, they're always the default null and alternative of equals zero, not equals zero because the default for many people is, I don't even know if that predictor is related to Y, so I want to test. But if you know it's related to Y, you may be far more interested in whether it's greater than three feet per year or something. And so you may want to do a different hypothesis test. To do that, you're going to have to construct your own t-statistic and do that in R yourself. Although there's probably a function out there. As R has become more popular, there are packages that embed packages inside of packages. And the, the, uh, the ggplot, my postdoc Nan told me, I, I've got to sell you guys on using ggplot. And I don't like ggplot, so. But, <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you used ggplot before? Joe does. Joe does, yeah. Some people really like ggplot. It has its own syntax, which is different from the default R uh, graphics syntax. So I use the, the base graph, R graphics functions. Uh, so think about that when you are uh, playing with these models. One comment that I will also make is, in simple linear regression only, the overall f-test is equivalent to the t-test for the slope. They're equivalent. And if you actually fit them, you'll get the same p-value, exactly the same p-value. For simple linear regression only, this is a trick question sometimes statisticians put on exams. Not me. I won't do that because I don't believe in trick questions. But the reason being that the overall f-test, right, it says, is there a relationship between x and y? 
Well, you can't have a relationship between x and y unless the slope is non-zero. Fair enough? And when we get to multiple regression, the overall f-test says, is there a relationship between at least one x and y? Doesn't tell you which ones. You've got to go dig into those t-tests to decide which x's. And in those cases, the tests are not equivalent. But for simple linear regression only, they are equivalent. You'll get the exact same p-value if you do it. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about fit statistics. Fit statistics are metrics of the quality of fit of a regression line. It's not good enough to just say, "Way, well, hey, my regression is significant. Because two models may be totally different. They may have similar slopes. You fit a height against age um, relationship for Aspen. Don't, don't write this down. I'm just giving an example. And here's height against age for sugar maple. Both of those may have statistically significant regressions. That may be good enough. You might call those equivalent because that's all I was interested in. But clearly, this line is a closer approximation to the data than this line is. This has a better fit than this one does. And how can you characterize the quality of that fit? They may both be significant. They may have very similar slopes. But how can you characterize the quality of that fit? Well, clearly, just looking at it, the quality of fit is related to the variance, the residual variance around the regression line, which is very small in this one, the variance at any point x here, and it's very large in this one here. So we have some very classic fit statistics. The first one is uh, RMSE, root mean squared error, a.k.a. your sy dot x, uh, a.k.a. Standard error. Every regression should report this fifth statistic. Because right away, just like you'd never report a mean without reporting some metric of the variance, gives us some idea of how precise our estimate of the mean is, you shouldn't report a mean function without reporting some idea of the residual variance. So for every regression, you should report the root mean squared error. Yeah, is that a question, Glenn? Yeah? Yes, it is. Um, just for my uh, lack of gray cells this morning, yep. is this the true standard error or the standard error of the estimate we're talking about? Standard error of the estimate. AKA square root um, residual variance, or square root mean square error. Sometimes it'll say RMSE. I think that's what it says in R. RSE, yeah, it may say RSE, root square error, right? This is the residual variance around the regression line. Why is that useful? Because even if, you, if somebody reports a regression to you, right, and they say, here's my regression for height versus age for aspen, and here's my regression of height versus age for sugar maple. There you go. Which one's better? How do you know? You don't have any idea about the residual variance. But the empirical rule applies here. That's at least, it's really a silly name for it when I think about it. That's what I learned in 1987 when I started my undergrad degree. 
All the empirical rule says is that from a normal distribution, 68% of the variability is plus or minus one standard deviation of the mean. So plus or minus one standard deviation of this mean function, you have 68%. And you don't even need to draw it. If somebody told you the root mean squared error was large, you'd say, oh, I know that the variability of the observations around the line must be large. And 96% plus or minus two times. Another thing to remember about this thing is that it has, this, it has the same units as y. We're often bad, I'm bad about including those units. The RMSE, if, is, if this is height in feet, then the RMSE is in feet. You wouldn't say the mean is eight feet with a standard deviation of three. You'd say no with a standard deviation of three feet. The same thing is true for the RMSE in regression. Why should you include the RMSE always? Well, it's because most people like to use a different fit statistic known as the coefficient of determination, or R squared. Now, when I was talking about partitioning sums of squares, I said that the regression is best when all of our variance, variance goes into the sums of squared regression and less of our variance goes into the sums of squared error. So we can express that relative metric using the coefficient of determination. This is called R squared. Right? This is equal to the, um, make sure I get it in the right terms, it is sums of squared regression. Yeah, we don't want the degrees of freedom. Sums of squares regression divided by sums of squares total. So it's the fraction of the total variance in y that falls into that one variance component due to the regression. You, of course, since these have to add, that's 1 minus SS error over SS total. And textbooks sometimes, and I said SS error, and I promised I would try to be consistent, that should be SS residual. The proportion of the variance in y that's explained by the regression line is the common term we use for this. An interesting thing is that in the case of simple linear regression only, the r squared is actually the square equivalent to the square of the correlation coefficient for simple linear regression only because you have two variables. Some people are really particular about this in notation. I'm so-so. In simple linear regression, it's a lowercase r. In multiple regression, it's a capital R. R gives, I think R <laughs> gives you a capital R all the time because somebody didn't want to write the code to differentiate between the two. Now, if the coefficient of determination just explains the percentage of the variance, um, describes the percentage of the variance explained by the line, why do you need this one over here? Obviously, the more variance you explain, the better the regression, right? Well, the trick is that the coefficient of determination is a function of the slope. <coughs> and if you have two regressions with the same mean squared error but different slopes, they will have different R squared or coefficient of determination statistics. And, that, and using my similar example, what if we had Aspen here? 
and sugar maple. We could have a, a, a very shallow line with a very tight mean squared error and a steeper line with the same mean squared error. Right? So this is height and age. This one will have a higher R squared. Even though the RMSE or the standard error, residual standard error, or standard error of the estimate may be the same. The one with the steeper line will have a higher R squared. So when I learned regression, I was told always report both of them. People like R squared because it's very simple. Clearly, like if someone said, well, I had a root mean squared error of seven feet, because I told you it's got the same units as Y. Is that good? Well, I have no idea unless I know a lot about those kinds of problems. But if someone said I had R squared of 0.9, is that good? Generally, in almost any scenario. In the kinds of, uh, again, good is always relative because remember R squared is kind of that ratio of uh, signal to total variance. In some cases, it's just there's so much random variability, it's impossible to get a high R squared. In the, in the individual tree growth modeling I do, an R squared of 0.4 is good. 0.45 is excellent. 0.35 is really should try and do better. So it's, these are always relative to the problems. If you have a lot of stochasticity in your system, it may be that an R squared of 0.3 is just fine. So these things are all relative. And I'm, uh, in my modeling class I teach, by the end of that class, 14 weeks later, I've convinced students that all models are horrible. And so usually by the end of this class, I've convinced you that all regression is so full of uncertainty and error that it's a pointless tool and you should <laughs> give up right now, go get a job as a barista because what the heck, we're never gonna prove anything. That's why I like to emphasize the alpha. You're always going to make a mistake, at least alpha, sorry, up to alpha percent of the time, you're going to make a mistake. The fact, get used to it. <laughs> and then you have to get past reviewers who are often morons. <laughs> Trust me, try to publish some papers. You're going to have that reaction at some point. Yeah, what do you mean? That's. Yeah. Uh, the, I think, yeah, you could, you could say so. In fact, there may even be some examples. Um, just like we often get around this fact that RMSE is uh, subject to the problem. You can do the same uh, in sta sample statistics. We often don't quote standard deviations. We quote coefficient of variation. You standardize to the mean, and that's one way of doing it. Um, but coefficient of variation has its own problems because different populations may have different means. And so it, it may very well be that, yeah, I expect the slope to be different. So if I standardize for the slope, well, which slope do I standardize to? So you, can, you could have a standard slope of one or something, but, but it's easier just to describe the, both, describe them both. And usually you, you have to uh, evaluate your statistics in the context of the past work in the area. You know, if someone says my RMSE was, and you can do CV for a regression line, but you, you know, my RMSE was, 17 feet, is that good? Well, I happen to know that height errors are great and sugar maple and so forth. And so no, actually it's, it's, that's a pretty good RMSE. So it really, it just comes down to interpretation. Okay. Um, oh, I'm ahead of myself already. Okay. 
Any questions? Report both of them, when you please, when you report uh, your statistics. R gives you both of them. And we'll talk about the other thing that uh, we'll talk about when we get, I'm sorry, maybe I shouldn't do this if I'm giving you hints of what's to come, but in multiple linear regression, R squared always goes up when you add predictor variables. It always goes up. So we have something called adjusted R squared that compensates for the number of predictors you add in a model. So that is an example of a, an adjustment. But R squared always goes up when you add predictors. So you should generally use the adjusted R squared when you're comparing models, uh, particularly if you have alternative competing models on the same set of data. We'll get to that when we get to multiple regression. Um, I want to talk now just a little bit about estimation versus prediction. And the textbook talks about this actually in the first chapter in the context of um, confidence intervals and, and just basic in review of basic statistics. And I, I tend to talk about it in this class in the context of regression. You can put a confidence interval on a regression line. And if you put a confidence interval on a regression line, that's just a confidence interval on a, on a one of those um, y hat xk's. Is that what I said it was? A y hat xk is just a position on the regression line corresponding to some kth value. That's the y hat xk. And I gave you the standard error, the formula for the standard error of that thing. Clearly, with the standard error, you can put a confidence interval on it, right? This line, though, this mean function, these are the predicted or the fitted or fitted values. That's what we call these y hat xk's. That's the, and it happens that if you meet all those regression assumptions that the, for any given xk, and if you repeatedly resample, the mean of those predicted values would be the mean of y for any given xk. It's kind of a central limit thing expanded out here. But when we put a confidence interval on any of these little fitted values, we put a confidence interval on the regression line itself. We do that in the context of our training data, in the context of the data that we collected to estimate the regression line. And by the way, you'll find that these are curved. And they're curved because the standard error of the fitted value is a function of the sums of squared x, the, de the deviance from x bar. So the further you get from x bar, the larger these standard errors get. So you'll find these are curved when you plot co confidence intervals on a regression line. But what about the scenario where you now want to use your regression equation to come up with a prediction of a likely value of y for a new observation. I'm going to go out, I've gone out and I've collected a whole bunch of data on, on heights and ages of jack pine trees. I fitted a regression line to predict height as a function of age. Now I want to use this in a different location, in a different stand. Maybe it's within the same broad population, jack pine in Michigan. Then. The reason we have a confidence interval around here is because we don't have perfect information. Our regression line comes from a sample. It's not perfect. If we collected a different sample, we'd get a different regression line. We, we have some extra variance when we talk about estimation because we not only have the built-in uncertainty in the regression line, but we also have the built-in uncertainty as is the new tree, this 
brand new tree that I've never measured before, but I now want to generate a prediction for, is how far is it from the population mean? It has its own sample based uncertainty. So when we use this regression line to make a prediction for a new case, for a new observation, we have not only the uncertainty in the line, we have the fact that this new observation was picked randomly from a distribution. And they may be the same, but it means that when we, when we put, when we come up with these, these brand new, right? So this is a fitted value. This is a genuine prediction uh, for a new case that has x value x equals some value of xj. And we dump that in our regression equation and we find our new y hat is equal to b0 plus b1, this new xj that we just went and got somewhere else. This has to have a larger confidence error, error confidence interval than this one does, even at the same value of x. Because this one is subject to our sampling uncertainty around the line. This one is subject to our sampling uncertainty around the line and the fact that we have no idea where from the distribution of x that we picked that observation. Okay, So we have two different standard errors in regression for these fitted values. And I gave you the standard error for a fitted value. We call this... Um, This one was sigma 1 over n plus x minus x bar squared. And in my discipline, in my discipline, this is becoming important. And I'll give you a practical value, a reason why in a minute. That was the formula for the standard error of a fitted value. If you want to put a confidence interval on that fitted value, confidence intervals are always y hat plus or minus t with alpha over 2, n minus 2 for the regression case, times the standard error of y at, at xk. I feel burdened by notation sometimes. Notation is just compact, and it's supposed to be objective, but people use different things. So. People use different notation to say the th same thing. So let me just speak to this for a minute. Confidence intervals are always two-sided. They're always two-sided. There's a plus or minus on there. They don't have to always be two-sided. Someone could say, would you please give me the positive, the right-hand confidence interval? But we rarely, we rarely have that scenario when we report confidence intervals. Confidence intervals give us just some idea of how much precision we think we have in our estimate of the statistic. Right? Usually we're, we're interested in both directions. So they're all virtually always two-sided. That's why alpha is divided by two here on the T. The degrees of freedom come from whatever the mean square was that you used to calculate the standard error. You back it up into here. It's this one. This was your standard error of the estimate, you'll replace that with your standard error of the estimate. I should actually put a hat in there. So the degrees of freedom come from your residual mean square. And all confidence intervals have your reference distribution and your standard, your, your variance or your square or standard deviation from the reference distribution. I like this format for a confidence interval because it is the most compact and it's the easiest for me to remember. Statistic, plus or minus, 
reference distribution, standard error of statistic. All confidence intervals are that way. If you can memorize that, statistic, plus or minus, reference distribution, standard error of statistic. Okay. The standard error of a predicted value is very similar, but it has that extra component. And those of you who have uh, looked at this in the text, you have this extra one in there. So the little star, we're going to say, represents a new observation of x from the population. And we use our regression to generate a predicted value of y. This is the standard error we get for that. It's a little bit wider. OK. Um, yes? What is the little symbol next to the x in parentheses, first one, the x equals x? Is that a star? That? Yeah. x equals x star. What I'm saying, so this is the, the predicted value is, is an estimate, y hat, for the star means for a new observation. Not, not used in fitting the regression line. Given x takes some new value of x, some new observation. Actually, this is a good place to illustrate. That's, by the way, not an h. It's an n. Um, this is a good point to illustrate why regression lines are curved, or confidence intervals on regression fitted and predicted values are curved. This thing gets bigger as any given x, and I should have put that star there too, by the way, any given x gets far away from the mean of x. This thing gets bigger. This is the sums of squared of x. That's a constant. Once you fit the line, that's a constant. But this thing gets bigger as you get farther and farther away from x. So this whole thing becomes bigger as you get farther and farther away from the mean of x. So confidence intervals are curved. And I'll show you an example uh, in a minute. By the way, this also illustrates another point, which is that this thing here, the sums of squared x, is a constant. And I, I really like you to re remember this. It's a constant conditional on the fitting data, the data you use to estimate the coefficients. Where do those data come from anyway? Do they drop from the sky? If you're fitting a regression, you probably went and got them. You went and measured trees, height and age. Right? I always use height and age. How did you get those heights and ages? Did you just make them up? You walk out in the woods, you measure trees. How do you decide which trees to measure? Most people assume that when you collect data for regression, that the trees, the objects, the observations that you collect must be selected randomly. And that is not true. You can be purposive in regression. Remember, the variance in regression comes only in the y direction. You can control the x direction as much as you'd like. Regression is unbiased as long as the variance of y is unbiased. You don't walk around the forest and pick only tall trees to measure. But you can walk out in the forest and pick whatever ages you want. And since the sums of squared x, since the sums of squared x, which is also sxx, is the sum of x minus x bar squared, right? The, the bigger you make this thing, the bigger you make this thing, the smaller you make this thing. 
the sums of squared error. What does that do? It compresses your, your confidence intervals in regression. There's nothing that says you can't be purposive in how you sample x. And so if I want to build the most powerful regression, I am not going to sample randomly. If I sampled randomly, I'm going to sample, and let's, what's the distribution of tree age in the forest? You guys don't need to know much about forestry, but how, how common are tree ages of 800? Pretty rare. How common are tree ages of zero, or one, sorry, one? They're common in regenerated stands, but how many regenerating clear cuts do we have out there? You're right, you're right, they're very, they have to exist. But we've got a lot of trees. In fact, the distribution of tree age in our forest is probably something like that. So the mean is somewhere in here, right? If I sample randomly, what am I going to get in my sample from tree, for tree ages? I'm going to get samples that are proportioned to their abundance in the population. I'm going to sample mostly trees down here. So why don't I sample using a prism, those of you who are foresters, go out in a forest and sample using a prism, which samples large trees with higher probability. In fact, not only that, when you go out to sample, you can say, I want to get a very even sample across my entire range of x. So I'm going to sample until I get 10 trees in the first tenth percent of what I think the range could be. So what's the range? It's from 0 to, uh, let's say, 200 commonly in forests. Divide that into bins that are age 50 wide, maybe less than that, say 10, we've got 20 bins. I'm going to sample until I get, randomly, I'm going to randomly pick trees, until I get 10 in each of these bins. And that guarantees that I spread my sampling effort across x, that increases the sums of squared x. As long as I don't pick the heights, as long as I am completely agnostic to tree heights, you can purposively pick tree ages. As long as I'm completely agnostic to height, you maximize sums of squared x and you get more power. And this is why my old evil graduate students put that little thing on the wall, the little... I had some students at one time had a picture of me and they made a little, what do we call it, a balloon, like words coming out of your head? And they said, we need the power or something. I'm all about power. Anyway, the, the point is, are you here for fun or are you here to get a degree and move on? Would you like to reject false null hypotheses or do you want to sort of never, uh, just sort of test things and always come out with, nah, no, you want power. Arrgh. So sample purposively across x. Run your experiment and pick extremes. Make sure, though, that you're agnostic to y. Okay, the third thing I wanted to say about this is uh, it's coming up in professional meetings right now in my field, but uh, people are concerned about the fact that they use predicted uh, fitted values as predicted values, and they don't consider the extra variance in here, which means if you use these, if you, if you put a confidence interval on a fitted value, on a predicted value, as if it were a fitted value, your confidence interval is going to be narrower than it really is. You're going to think you're more confident in your data than you really are. That's usually what we don't want to do in statistics. We don't want to think we're more confident in our data than we really are. So be careful about this. Uh, I'm seeing, at least it's been suggested to me in some fields that, um, the worst example is when people use regression equations to create data and then uh, in a sample and then they summarize the data using standard survey statistics. Uh, the best example I can give you for that is you put in plots in a forest stand. Any of you ever put plots in anywhere? It can be, I don't know, what is it, reaches in a stream, petri dishes in a lab, 
whatever, I don't know. Put in plots in a stand and you measure all the trees in this plot. You measure their diameter and then you use a regression equation to generate a predicted biomass for that tree. Then you average the biomass across all of these trees to get an average for this plot. And we call that observation one. And we do this until we get to XK or whatever. Now we have survey data and we treat those observations as if they are measured without error. And they're not. They're the product of a regression equation which has error in it. If we treat these observations like they're error free, when we summarize these plots, we calculate a mean biomass per acre, and we put a confidence interval on that mean biomass per acre, we are far underestimating the size of that confidence interval because these aren't error free. They have prediction error from the regression. And our real confidence interval may be way wider than we think. You may not care about biomass, but you might care about, say, threshold habitat attributes for an endangered species or pesticide residues in food. Those are extremely important. And now I'm sure the, the food people worry about this, but the natural resources people haven't enough. And I've been to a few meetings where I've seen people give presentations on, on this thing. Plus, it's always fun if you know a little bit more about statistics than the next person to demolish their argument this way. So, it's always fun. Was there a question? Yeah, Michelle. Over here? Yeah. What I should have said was x star like that to stay with the notation I did on the right here. So if x is equal to some, get some new measurement of x, a single new observation. I went up and measured one tree or one soil pit or one squirrel or whatever you're interested in. So these are new, the star means new, not part of the data set you use to build the regression. Maybe part of the same population but not part of the, in fact, hopefully part of the same population, but not from the sample you use to build the regression. Does this make sense? It needs to make sense intuitively. It'll it's in your text, and so you'll come across it. You should have already in chapter one, and we'll come across it in, in chapter two as well, and it's important. And I thought I was gonna get to the example today, but I'm not, so I guess I'm gonna do it on Monday, but now I know what I'm doing on Monday. I have a worked example uh, of all we've been talking about for the last week in R, which I will go through with you in class on Monday. And, um, and I will also come up with some new homework for you, but don't worry about that today. Don't forget, we have Winter Carnival next week, so we don't have a lecture on Friday. I will have some new ho homework for you, though, uh, for next week for simple linear regression of the text. And I think I w the due date for your homework is Monday, is it not? Yeah. If you have any questions about that, I'm going to my office now to have some lunch. I have a teleconference at 1 with a grad student. I'm free between 2 and 3. And then I'm going to the forum, the faculty forum here, to see what Blair has to say about random research careers. Sounds like that's what mine is. If you looked at my CV, my papers are all over the place. By the way, reviewers can be really, really, really nasty. So don't, don't, don't get your hopes too high when you publish your first paper. We all get rejected. Usually for dumb reasons. They didn't see how awesome my study was. I can't believe it. I mean, I... thank you. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, complaints, please send me a note.